1 Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of Rev Recovery. I'm one of the hosts, Sarah Heath, and my co-host is Justin Gentry. And before we kick off into this week's episode, I want to just have a moment of what some would call personal privilege. Um, Liz, who is our editor, has been going through a lot with the illness and potential passing away of her beloved feline. And so you guys don't know who Liz is because she does such incredible work behind the scenes. But if you would like to send just good thoughts and wishes to our editor, Liz, as she goes through the passing away of a beloved pet which for many of us we know is like family so liz thank you for all you do and thank you for keeping this show working behind the scenes all right on to our conversation with rebecca ching rebecca ching is a dear friend of mine lmft she's a leadership developer a psychotherapist writer and speaker she works incredibly hard to make sure that leaders are doing it without sacrificing their health, their important relationships, and their business bottom line. She actually worked with a large parachurch organization, and you're gonna hear lots about that, before she jumped into becoming a leadership developer and therapist. So we are so grateful that we were able to have this conversation with her. I gotta tell you, it goes all over the place in some really great ways. And make sure you stick around for the end, because I feel like there was just such, I don't know, like, Uh, greatness and wisdom just at the end. So thank you guys. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Recovery. (laughs) I am so glad, uh, Rebecca, that you've joined us today. What I love a lot about this show is that people will say, well, what are the questions? And we say, well, really, the only question we actually have planned is asking people how long they served in ministry. But we realized we started asking people how long they served, which sounds like prison. So now <laughs> we just kind of make sure we say like in ministry. So how long were you in ministry? Because that is not your primary thing that you have done in your life, but you were in ministry. I was for, uh, I volunteered when I was uh, working on Capitol Hill, I volunteered with Young Life and their urban chapter on the Hill for a few years. And then I did a brief stint in New York City and decided had some literally life and death experiences and realized that the call to do something that had a little bit more meaning than just working with multi-million dollar accounts. And so I joined Young Life full time, um, but I went into their overseas a part of their organization and worked with third culture kids and uh, folks in the international English speaking schools in Zurich, Switzerland for four years. And then after that, I worked for uh, about three years full time, but more on the kind of recruiting and training of folks who were going overseas while I was in graduate school. So it was a good decade, total volunteer and full time almost. Yeah. 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 And in general, like it, it's interesting because you are now someone who works with leaders again, right? Like full circle, you're back at it. Such full circle. How do you reflect on those years? Because you and I have sat and watched the sunset and talked a little bit about it. How do you reflect on those years when you were both as a leader and then training leaders? Well, one of, I mean, and you know, I, I have such fond and powerful memories of my time working with Young Life and also just want to say that you're there's a reckoning that they're going through right now. It's, and I think it's important. So I wanted to say, I acknowledge that. And I agree with the reckoning and a lot of the concerns that are coming up all around the organization. But what one of the many values that I took away from that is this kind of phrase of earning the right to be heard, right? That it was just this building relationships and earning, you know, and just meeting kids where they're at and their families 
and building relationships with folks. And that has just stayed with me instead of this power over move. It's just been, how do I get to know people? How do I meet them where they're at? You know, prior to that, I was working in politics and that <laughs> there's a lot of that too, but this has a little bit of a different kind of approach. And um, so, yeah, I think there's a sense of just, you know, let's, let me earn the right to even speak into somebody's life felt really, uh, really valuable (laughs) instead of because I have this title, I have the right. Um, There was a certain humility about that, that I've really, that's really stayed with me. And I never take for granted, no matter what hat I'm wearing. Yeah. Hmm. It's interesting because I think people have had like the opposite experience, right? We've had folks who have worked on Young Life before and they're like, yeah, we went into cultures and acted like ours was the dominant one. So it's lovely to hear that there were folks who were taking into consideration that you are a guest in all of the places that you go to. Well, I was because I was literally in another country or when I was living on Capitol Hill in D.C. and I grew up in the suburbs of Minnesota. So I've been a guest <laughs> in a lot of places, you know, and so that to me just there was a sense of humility of how do I get to know and really earn the right and ill earn and build trust with folks. There was a reverence of that. And but I also let me be honest. I mean, there's no question there was probably there was parts just because of my privilege and my background that I was in that process. But there are parts of me still were like, yeah, but my way is the right way. Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so the hu- that, that I cringe uh, excessively when I reflect back on that. <laughs> <laughs> we all have cringeworthy like moments. I oh, think that this is a giant confessional sometimes. Super cringy. But I, I'll, again, again, when I look back on it, it's just that posture with the kids. I think the staff experiences probably had a lot of more of that cringy stuff and the trainings. And when I look back on that, I'm like, what happened? But that overall fundamental kind of thread of that vision, that's something that I've, I've kept with me today, till today, through today. Even in parenting, you know, everything is, you know, let me earn the right to, to speak and earn your trust. And that just feels aligned even though I have a, I probably have a lot more humility today than I did back in the day of, am I right? Am I, you know, I, my way is right. Now it's more about the relationship more than anything less about being right or checking the boxes of the statistics. I'll never forget after camps and we had to do these annual checklists, how many kids came to club and to campaigners and to camp, how many gave their life to oh, Jesus. Geez. And I'm like, oh, I remember yeah. just kind of really that felt cringy and I'm like I mean and I, I understood from a business perspective like it that made sense to those parts of me but like what we were measuring just felt yuck and then like let's brag around we had this many kids except the lord and I'm like well that's a really powerful and personal and treasured thing it got really wonky and businessy and so that felt that felt yuck too do you think that's I'm just wondering because I think so many of our guests that are of a certain age have that same feeling. I say that very vaguely. Is that a generational thing? Because I feel like so much of the maybe 45 and younger people are like, uh, maybe I don't have the authority here. And, uh, or maybe like, just cause my badge says clergy, like that doesn't mean I can just say stuff. I don't know. I don't know if that's true because most well, of the really I mean, there, loud, obnoxious clergy could be, think they should it, say things are under forty-five. It could just be like a bearded Theobro thing versus everyone else. But yeah, I, well, actually, I think those guys. I have a theory that you know some people that were raised by baby boomers were are also baby boomers essentially. Like mm. they just never their, their cultural melu mm. that they were in made them. Not the generation they were born in, but that's another topic altogether. I just, I find that interesting that there's, I I feel like kind of a rising understanding that, hey, maybe, maybe we don't have all the answers here, or maybe there are folks we can learn from. Uh, whereas I don't know that that posture was maybe as prevalent previously. I could be wrong, but that's just. So no, we're being trained into that, I think a little bit. Yeah, a little Tot- bit. Totally. And I think there's gender to keep them in that probably helps with some of my oh, sure. deference and humility. Maybe some of that was more protective too, but I mean, I'm a Gen Xer through and through and was being trained and mentored by boomers. And so that sense of certainty was absolutely there. And I knew how to spin it and and talk it and write a good fundraising newsletter around it, but it never really seemed to work if I was in one-on-one relationship. So that, that just seemed different to me. 
or when I was when I was officially talking with the kids, but parents, I kind of could almost like code switching to the adults, to the kids, you know, to who you were talking yeah. to. Generational yeah, you, code switching is a thing. Yeah. Is it? Okay. So I could do that. Well, I mean, politics sure helped me be able to do that. Growing up in my household <laughs> helped me be able to do that. But I think there was a level of certainty. Some of it was just a real belief. Like this is like a genuine wholehearted, but I got, I got sucked in some paths. Like I was thinking about this interview and remembering some of the things that I would share with the kids. I don't even know, you know, you'll have to coax them out of me because I don't know if I want to publicly admit to things that I was encouraging them to read and to consider oh, yeah. as a worldview. Oh my Lord. Yeah. I've had like have written apology letters and had phone calls. Like, I'm so sorry about that. You know, like, <laughs> Oh you know, but it was just, you know, getting, cause there was, a, but there wasn't the, the hubris of that. And there, there's kind of that supremacy culture of it all yeah. too. There really was a power mm-hmm. over that I wasn't aware of. Cause there was this part of it that was just kind of innocence, like Jesus, yay. You know, let's just sharing about Jesus. It's all good. And missing so much, <laughs> so much of the intersectional aspect of being in a world where in fact, the way that I show up is not the global majority <laughs> amongst right. other things. But I think there's something what you're kind of getting to, Justin, I, I really think it probably had to do with my ability to survive in politics and working in New York City and advertising and being a young woman. I think some of that maybe was humility, but some of it was also I knew how to like let other people like you're the like I could def- defer to them and let them think whatever they wanted to think as a survival mechanism. So, I mean, I took folks on, but I would do it strategically. I'd now, now, if, now at 51 and a half, I'm like, I, I'm like front in the face. Like, you know, I call bullshit, right? I'm like, well, I was just going to say you are, you are known for helping leaders become authentic and become, yes. um, you know, you do, you work with Brene Brown's uh, organization. I mean, you are you are now the person who's like, yeah, let's not have bullshit. <laughs> like oh, that is yeah. not you anymore. And especially no. I'm lucky. I met uh, when we were working together, helping and being part of, and just participants in this group of female entrepreneurs and um, just love her ability to uh, be like, Oh, that's great. Let's go deeper. Like does not allow a surface level to remain. In fact, during COVID, this so something called the Yellow Collective, which is a group of women. Rebecca and our owner, I guess our leader, what will we call her? Joe, our CEO, yeah. would do a weekly podcast, just sort of checking in with everyone. It was a Zoom call that became a lifeline to so many of us because we were just sort of like, I is no one talking about how weird this thing is? No one's doing that. Let's get together and talk about it. Maybe it's an occupational hazard because I am coming up on 20 years as a trained psychotherapist. So there's like, you know, focusing on trauma and shame and perfectionism, which I mean, not a surprise that those are my areas of focus when I've come out of politics and international youth ministry and advertising. (laughs) I mean, it's like, sorry to snort there, but um, yeah. So so, yeah, but I, I think there is something... You know, I, I guess I'm really sitting with your question, Justin, because um, my I have I, I may be speaking more from my humility today, but I'm one. I'm as I'm sitting with this and going back, where I'm like, I, I really do think I was tender with the kids. Maybe they wouldn't say so, but I would try to be. But there probably was a lot more hubris and certainty as I'm sitting with that in my 20s and early 30s, for sure. And it's like kind of moving away from that, uh, the older I get. And I'm more confident in, again, speaking truth to bullshit. And it's like, you know, let's, let's go. Like what, yeah. you know, you know, and like the, yeah. the kind of stuff, like, you know, the, the power over moves that would kind of, I'd bob and weave when I was younger. I'm just like, I may be five too, but you want to go, let's go. Nice. You know? I love that. I love that. <laughs> I, you know, I wonder now that I'm kind of sitting with my own question for a little bit, I'm a, I, I, have been thinking too. I think, yeah, in your twenties, maybe early thirties, you most of us are just running on the scripts we were given. Yeah, totally. yeah, that's a great and way to put it. We're just, you know, this is the script. This is what we do. Like, because I did things in youth ministry when I was, you know, twenty three. You know, trying to be the cool youth pastor, trying to, but also trying to assert my authority over these nineteen year olds. You know, and I'm like, oh gosh, man, but. I think, I think, I don't know, humans in our society, you're kind of presented with a choice in your mid to late thirties where you're like, you can resist the bullshit, you can resist the bullshit (laughs) or you can become part of the bullshit. 
Yeah. And sometimes you don't even know you're swimming in the bullshit, right? Yeah. Like like the frog in the boiling water too. Yeah. And you just, you kind of become aware of it just enough to be like, I could be part of the bullshit or I could resist it. And I mean, most of the people on, our, on this podcast have resisted it in some ways. I mean, maybe that's just the circles I run in, but I'm just finding more and more people are like, yeah, there's something not right here. And we, we need to speak truth to that. Justin, you know, it was so interesting though, is I noticed that a lot and that's interesting you bring that up, but I overrode that instinct for a long time of like, this is off. And I'd look around and everyone else was like, woo. And then I maybe would have some side conversation. And then if I'd bring something up to the, to the surface, it would get squashed. And so it was kind of one of those things I overrode those instincts for a long time. And I think there is something to say that majority of my time working with youth in ministry was either on Capitol Hill or in Europe. And in Europe, I mean, (laughs) you know, folks are going to the pub at 14, 15, it's legal at 16, you know, sex. I mean, like, you know, like some of the more puritanic, the view, like all of these things that were so associated with like no drugs, no sex, dress this way. You know, I was in Europe. And so I think that probably took the, I had, there was none of that was going to fly with these folks from around the world. And, and I'm grateful for that. Um, And it was, even though the families from the States were like, in mostly the parents were in shock of like, what are my kids being exposed to? But I think there was also the sense of like learning about things and really having, oh my gosh, we, nobody really has good solid education on what happens when you do drink. 20 bottles of beer what happens if you wake and bake for a week on end you know these are the conversations i was having with like some of the kids i remember they were saying rebecca isn't it better to be high because that's when i really connect with jesus and i would sit there and go (laughs) do my research and go hey it's very possible you could have a spiritual experience from what I'm like, but let me just talk to you what's going on with your brain with your you know your body and just at your at 14, 15, 16, let me and, and what this long term impact is, you know, so I found myself kind of toggling that because of the community that I was, I was with, that the more like, <laughs> you know, the sex drugs and rock and roll stuff wasn't going to fly, like kind of just yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. that at all in an expat community. <laughs> I think I always tell people like, I remember just being kind of hit in the face with the difference when we moved from Canada to Mississippi and, you know, my mom's British, my dad's Canadian. They're wonderful people, as I always say. And they had, you know, they went, we went grocery shopping. So my mom had some Guinness in the fridge. And, you know, at that time, a lot of uh, Christians in Mississippi would hide their alcohol. And so one of my friends, my new friends who had just stopped by our house to meet me, opened the fridge and there's some Guinness and this girl's like, whose Guinness is that? And I was like, oh, it's my mom's. She's like, oh. <laughs> it was like the funniest moment. I was like, hi, I don't think we're in Canada anymore, guys. <laughs> like, this is weird to them. And it is in no way weird to me. They're like, oh, man, no. they're a real alcoholic. <laughs> they, don't, they don't even hide their beer. Right. <laughs> but you bring, what you brought up is something I wrestled with after leaving ministry and really starting to explore. Once I got out of the full-time mode, but I have, I actually save the domains, you know, Christian enough, you know, but I have a draft of a bush of a book title, but it was like Christian enough question mark, Christian enough period. And, and that was kind of this journey for several years after like, oh, must hide the beer. And, oh, did I swear too much? And, oh, you know, is my soon to be husband Christian enough? And, you know, all of these different, am I church going to church enough? And, all of these things that I realized that I was doing to keep up the appearances so I could still belong. And that was so, I mean, that took me a while to detangle from of my own faith and my personal relationship with God and how I worship, how I pray in versus the performative, what the world saw and what I let other people have a say over on whether I was like, even, you know, I remember even some friends back in seminary would like, like, well, I saw that you traveled with your boyfriend, my now husband. Do we have to have a talk about sex? And I was like, what the heck is happening? <laughs> and I was like, you know, and I'm like, they're asking me these questions. And so anyways, there's just like, well, I just want to be accountable. It wasn't, is he treating you well? 
are you feeling respected? It was, yeah. are you following the rule book? You know, do you like yourself when you're with him? Do, how do you see yourself with him and parenting? None of I never got those questions. And from friends that aren't my close, close friends, I mean, they're friends like I adore from history, but they're not my inner circle anymore. But that Christian enough stuff and the performative stuff has been the hardest thing to, and most important thing for me to shred and shed and, and shred. And also it's actually just deep in my own faith once I did, you know, instead of worrying, okay, am I seen this way versus who am I and what is my, my faith journey like? And it's been the richest experience shedding that, but it, man, it took a minute, definitely took a minute. I remember us talking about that because you work with a lot of leaders who are kind of almost coming out of a similar narrative that in order to be a leader, you have to like be bullshit. Like you have to just be like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. Yeah, I have no problems. Uh, yeah, I'm the CEO. I'm pretty made up. Everything's great. You know, like, there's like, this, like everything's everything's winning. We're just winning. That's all we're doing here. There kids. was no room. There's no None. room for being fallible. And right. I even remember that when I was teaching, uh, I was teaching at grad school and I went to a seminary and I asked everyone to raise their hand. If how many of you feel like really confident about becoming you know, a psychotherapist and no one raised their hand? And I said, how many of you think that you you know, have to get all your stuff together to be ready to do this and have to be, have it all tidy and they're all like kind of slowly raise their hands. And I'm like, this is the problem. This is why we're sick because we're trying to exile and hide our just human struggles. And this like, and we love, I mean, man, especially in evangelical circles, we love a good victory story. We right. love the good redemption. They fell, they conquered like the hero's journey. And then they rose, they were forgiven, they were healed, they let it go happily ever after. Said no one ever that truly, you know, like, well, they said it, but then I would see that as a therapist behind the scenes, what really happened after those public proclamations. And I'm like, wow, people are really, these expectations are making us sick and slowly killing people, literally. At yeah. times. I, I remember sitting on struggles, you know, particularly as a, like, this is not going to be a poor white man moment, but just like, particularly as someone socialized male in this country, like you don't ever show weakness. Like, no, but I remember like sitting on struggles, like things like I should probably tell someone about this, but I'm going to sit on it until I overcome it. And then I can share. Well, I can't wait for that day when I can finally share it. Yeah. When I, I'll be able to let someone in on this once it's behind me. But now that I'm in the middle of it, like I, no one can know. And that's, that's pretty lonely. Turns out. And that's that's shame. You know, shame is like, let's keep this a secret. And that's where it festers and no one gets help. Yeah. That you nailed it. And I think whether it's any kind of leader ministry and other spaces, doesn't mean we have to like dump everything. Cause we, I think we've, we've seen the, the pendulum swing where all of a sudden you see these folks confess it all. And then you're supposed to like, go, Oh, group hug, lay hands, he's forgiven, and then not acknowledge the wake. And I say he, because you, the most part in the ministry space, it has been men in leadership that have abused power. And then they're more concerned about their recovery and centering their worrying about the folks who did harm versus the ones who are harmed. And it just never, even to this day, never ceases to amaze me how we can be talking about how someone who was wounded by a ministry leader and the conversation shifts so quickly to, okay, how are they doing? Are they, you know, are they, how are they feeling? Are they feeling loved and supported and moving away from those who've been harmed? That story is so consistent. It like, gets my blood boiling. Oh, it is. And it's interesting too, because this idea of like, how do we get rid of this big idea that we all have to all have it together? But at the same time, in fact, I read it in a Brene Brown book, I remember, because this is this like, there is a level where you don't want to make yourself the platform. So like being over vulnerable, like we've all had bosses who were like, are you okay? Like you spend most of your day worried about the boss because they've been so open and you're just like, I don't, Uh, I don't know that we're okay. (laughs) Like, how do we do this? So I think there is this pendulum swing and we have to figure out how do we both reconcile the fact that it used to be not okay to share anything what is safe to share and i think some of it has to do with exactly what you were talking about who's earned the right to Mm. hear it and it doesn't mean you're hiding it but it means like okay where are spaces that i can reveal this that's not going to make these people concerned 
you know, that they're whatever it might be that they need to take care of you. Cause that can, that could be just another form of manipulation in the same way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that. And, you know, Brene is really clear that vulnerability ceases to be vulnerability without permission and boundaries. Mm-hmm. And so if someone's just coming at the pulpit and you didn't get a, Hey, please leave right now. Cause I'm about to share these things. If you want to hear this, if not, you know, you can, no, it's just, and you kind of get swept, swept into this thing. And then it becomes this confessed collective confessional without real accountability. And again, healing doesn't really happen without boundaries and accountability too. So so yeah, you're you're absolutely right on that. And and who's earned the right to my story? And is it the right time and the right place and the right crowd? And what's my agenda? Always yeah. I'm work that's something I ask leaders. If you what's your agenda? If you're looking like what do you, if parts just want to be encouraged, who are your encouraging people that it won't do harm to? You know, if you just if you need a witness versus you need to work through some reparations or some accountability. So slowing through, slowing down and checking what is my agenda. But, you know, especially in young life, I don't, and are you familiar with kind of the whole club model where you always had your upfront folks at club? There's always like the funny folks who were the, you know, and then there was the person who gave the club talk. They were the, that always was kind of like, those are the leaders. Those are the folks who can lead because they're the funny ones or they're the ones that can give a little talk and then have people walking up stage. And, and there was this, I heard so many people, even within the organization saying, well, I'm not a leader because they weren't the upfront person. But there was this really incredible book I read at my area director school that had so many flaws in it. But there was this sense that anyone who walks into a room is a leader because your presence shifts the chemistry of the room. And that really made sense from a systems theory perspective, too, as I sat on that over the years. And it got me thinking about how do we want to, when we walk in a room, what's the impact that we want to have in our unique way? Not just everyone has to be the intense, super funny, super powerful, passionate, can, you know, convert souls by the dozens, you know, with their words. Which also just sounds like a tech bro. Like it's one way or the other. It's like well, the same. Well, and let's take a yeah. look at if we look at what people are doing with they leave ministry, look at where a lot of them are going. Marketing, branding, tech. There's mm-hmm. an interesting phenomenon there too. Yeah, I think I love your idea of checking yourself because what we so our audience is mostly people who have transitioned or are transitioning out of the job. And so I just think like your particular skill of helping leaders sort of reclaim themselves in some way, because it's not you're right. It is damaging to the crowd. It's also damaging to the person. And if they don't heal that stuff, the next thing they go into, they're going to feel like they got to show up in the same way. Yeah, yeah. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Are you seeing as, just because you work with so many different spheres, so not just like one thing, are you seeing with this like great resignation and people switching careers and trying to figure out what's next, are you seeing folks feel this like, massive sense of insecurity that I feel like there isn't a person I don't talk to every day. Someone every day I talk to is experiencing sort of this idea of like, who am I to be even thinking I should do this? And Mm. then sort of how do you help folks who have, um, yeah, who are trying to figure out, like, I don't want to be the manipulative tech bro, but those are my skill sets. So I got to figure out how to do it in a healthy way. You know, there's a reason why I could go into marketing. I'm good at it. (laughs) I got to eat and this is what I can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's, I think I say twofold. Like I've had some interesting conversations with the employers that are just aghast and infuriated that so many people are leaving. How dare they? They're so entitled. And that's one one piece that I've had those conversations. And then other folks, honestly, what ushers in when they first realize their skill sets and also who they and where they put their identity and their worth, there's an immense amount of grief work 
that's mm. really so there's like some of that shame work trauma work kind of identity that moves to grief work and yes. just really and that takes time i know for me it, I, again a several years of shedding and reorienting and and for me becoming a parent really helped jumpstart that of coming into my own that doesn't have to be for everybody that was just my story but i would say when i offer permission just permission to consider you don't have to keep sacrificing like this if you're unhappy you don't have to keep leading and impacting this way there's other ways to do it just even that permission to get curious about it usually leads to an eventual avalanche and then the other side is the employers and organizational leaders or any higher ups that are just like dismissing and missing the cues of people hurting who are reclaiming their own identity and getting out of group think, getting out of this kind of toxic masculinity, supremacy culture. If you're, you know, full body sacrifice, either you're in or you're out, you're with us, against us, you know, these complete horrible binaries. And they're having a really hard time adapting and just saying that everyone else is just entitled and soft, which when I slowly unpack that with some of these leaders or, or employers, and they're like, like, here's the data, what's happening. Here's specific feedback I've heard from folks who've left. This is why. And then they go, I never got that. So how mm-hmm. could I give that? I didn't know that that was okay. And there's like, I don't understand how that doesn't, that's an option to still have a viable organization, company, business, and still lead this way. So I think there's both of that going on because you can't give what you don't have as cheesy. I mean, we can fake it for a, a minute, but you know, there's some real seismic identity stuff happening, even though I think the data behind the great resignation, there's, I mean, it was a wonderful buzzword, right? It was like clickbait, like crazy, but there was something to spend where folks were like, peace, I'm done. I don't want to sacrifice this. I'll make less than care for my kids and not pay through the nose for childcare and then work incredible hours and never see my kid. I'm going to radically shift my life and figure out my new enough. And I think that's something that I've seen folks, but it's, yeah, it's a challenge. But at the same time, like you said, I still have to, I'm, I'm in, I've got a mortgage. I've got mm-hmm. college coming up. I've got medical bills. I've got, I'm tied to this with my insurance and we've got healthcare needs. It just teases up a lot of systemic issues that a lot of people take on to, oh, I must be doing something wrong. And I'm like, no, there's a lot that's rigged here, folks. Let's yeah. just give credit where credit's due. Yeah. Well, and I think too, really for good. those of us who were in church, situations where we were told like you're going to be the generation like that was always every song started out like every every generation had a generation song am i God right is like, raising up a generation yeah, yeah, yeah. You, among us today yeah and... and so you had to be impactful and i think you're right i no think pressure. everybody is a leader and everybody does impact but you yeah. said you're new enough you're new enough and i think that has been a major shift for our folks in Discord even, they're like, I thought I had to be impacting so many people all the time. And so when I take a, a quote unquote regular job, I wonder like, am I using my gifts and skills enough? Am I, you know, all this sort of stuff. And I think learning how to have like a new enough is, it's so fascinating when you when you take away, you know, how do I please other people and all that sort of stuff. And now it, it, it's grief. Like, you know, one, one person shared yesterday in our group that like, does anyone just start crying <laughs> all the time? And this yeah. is like a, a male pastor who like is no longer a pastor. And he's like, I am, you know, I've been deconstructing and I've been going through all this stuff and I just, I'll cry. I don't know why. And I can't explain it, but it's grief. And I think you nailed it. It's like, if you move out of shame, you move into grief. And then the beauty is moving into the reconstruction. You know, I think often in the deconstruction conversations, we're not talking enough about what are we rebuilding then and I think that's been the exciting thing to see folks like we don't we you know we have to chuck it all and then float around aimlessly you know it's what are we gonna what are we gonna take and that's a part of our story this is these experiences are a part of our story and again when we're a part of an organization or a I wouldn't even say these are faith traditions but it's more of the human that communicate these faith traditions where it's not okay to communicate struggle or doubt or question authority. When I look at my cult literature, there's a lot of similarities. And so I was going back to my cult literature when we were in 
uh, shelter in just because of all the things we're seeing. And it tapped into some of my own deconstruction process too, in my own journey um, with recognizing how to separate, you know, who I am and my relationship with me and God from these organizations or these people who I thought were, oh, they were the Christians to aspire to. It wasn't even about Jesus anymore. It was about these other people. I didn't realize I was trying, I have to be like you and have your approval. And so I think, so I think it's like, what do we get to rebuild? And I think that's, we want to remind folks, even in that grieving space, is that's part of the building. You know, it's, that's part of the rebuilding. That's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I think reconstruction has been like, in a weird way, because the church has been so, freaked out people have been using reconstruction to be like how are you rebuilding your faith and some people are like i'm not yeah and no. so i don't think that's what you i mean that's not what you mean by oh, reconstruction but no, it's like it's this not, yeah it's rebuilt what are you rebuilding that's yours it, it, that's true to you yeah. and how you're uniquely made that's you're taking what you want from your what you've learned and what are you leaving behind and what are you going to continue to cultivate I think if folks stay stuck in the limbo and sometimes just people have to hang out there for however long they need but if you're rejecting anything else, that's when I nudge and challenge folks. It's like, well, what are you for? Who are you? You know, like you get to create yeah. this, but there's almost this fear because of the trauma. Like, I don't want to identify. There's almost this rejection of rebuilding anything because they don't, they've lost their sense of self-trust and, yeah. and who they are. And so that's that nuanced work about, that's funny. So I, I didn't realize that that's part of the conversation. They're trying to oh, hotwire yeah. the grief process to like, all right, you're deconstructed. Let's rebuild. I'm like, oh no, no. No, no. I like that hot wire. Yeah, let's just take this. Yeah. Well, that's that's how doubt is viewed so much in like Christian circles. Kind of like what I talked about, like having a story that has an ending. Like, man, if I had a story as a pastor that was like, oh, I doubted that the Lord rose again, you know, last week, you know, but now I'm I'm back. And like that's like, yay, we love that story. But when it's like, no, I doubted it, and then I walked away. Like that's certainly not as celebrated in those circles, but like uh, uh, to me, that's like, especially with people on our discord, like that's actually super brave to yeah. walk away from something that gave you so much support, so much structure. You realized it doesn't work for you anymore for whatever reason. Yes. Um, but now like, again, like how do you build a moral framework now? And I, and I, it's, it's very possible, whatever your belief system happens to end up being like, there's a moral framework attached to that there is a conviction. There's like, well, what is it that I do now? And do you have to do anything? That's also a valid question. Like, you know, is, do you have to impact all these people? Do you have to do this, that, and the other? No. I think so no. many, like for me, it was like, okay, I'm, I'm out of the church, but I, I still have to have a ministry of some kind. It may not be a ministry, but it is like, it but needs to be, but it yeah. needs to be a ministry. And uh, like, man, I worked in the restaurant industry for a hot minute and the number of like former pastors or like, you know, former seminarians that like end up being waiters. You're like, like, oh, like, I mean, it's my podcast. I can say that it's like, man, fuck these guys. Like get, I just want to serve my tables. I don't want to hear about the Lord. Like I was a Christian at the time too. Like I was also a former pastor, but I was like, I don't want to tell anybody because these dudes like, this is like, no, this is not it. So it's like, they're using it as like their uh, way of getting to know people yeah in a creepy but also healing but also but also healing right they needed a time out correct yeah yeah like they yeah they they weren't using it as that you've got to turn it off at some point and you've got to and you have to i think you just do a total reevaluation. like that's what i had to do and it was it was sad and depressing and and i'm not good at grief he's a seven on the enneagram so grief is not sorry that sucks it's it's a life sentence yeah it's 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 actually though it's it's doable that's it is doable and the thing about grief though i will say we we instinctually we want to push it away because it is so exquisitely painful and unpredictable and the more we try to control it it kicks our ass it's kind of like an unruly teenager like are you going to tell me my curfew is 10 and not 12 well i'll show you it has that kind of way if we try to control it but one of my why it's become my favorite emotion or one of my favorite emotions not to top the top of the list is because it's so incredibly clarifying all of a sudden what matters and what doesn't comes into such crystal oh. focus when i when i let it metabolize when yeah. i let it metabolize and work through it because if i don't then it becomes stuck and i'm stuck in time but the more that i could let it do what it needs to do and do its job 
however long it took and it's this one year stuff is bullshit it's whatever however long it takes for whenever it's it's when we get stunted and avoid it is when it's complicated not if it goes on forever like you know so i just i respect that but it's that just and that resistance because also the message is you know don't show anything keep it together shiny happy praise people and we're good and God is good, you know, and you know, those people, I remember those people every sentence, but thanks be to God. Oh, and I just want to, and I'm like, but can, I finally was like, can we stop saying that every, like, can it just be like, yes, it's a given, but there was that performative lingo, even in some of the circles I was in that it just felt weird. Like people couldn't say something and it wasn't out of that joy place, that genuine, like, oh my gosh, I am so grateful to God. Like mm-hmm. it felt different. And so but this thing about grief, and and also when I'm listening to you talk, Justin, and imagining you working with folks that are survivors of a really broken and flawed system that was people were burned and churned, you know, and and that is the problem. Not the but then we're left feeling like we're the ones that messed up, we're broken, we're flawed, we're the sinners, we're the outliers, we're we're the ones that we were chasing before and pursuing and praying for. And now we're the broken ones where actually it's the most healthy thing to do is that to differentiate and to get space. But man, is that a scary, lonely, uncomfortable place to discover what belonging is like without just trying to fit in, but to really start to belong in whatever faith means to you. So for me, it's been so freeing. I end up, you know, I'm coming back to a place that is very beautiful and true, but it's scrappy. It's definitely not polished. I I mean, I went to seminary, so I have all the right answers in my head, but it's always about relationship. And it's, and it is about a humility and a sense of where power is. And if you have so many people that this podcast had to be developed for this, that had to be, but was inspired. There's so many, but you're on a, you're on a, a discord where folks are sharing similar stories again. What's the actual F? I mean, seriously. And that people aren't hearing this going, what are we doing wrong on how we're treating people? Is this the message that we're sending? No, it got co-opted by a lot of power and a lot of greed. And did you see that Timothy Keller, Timothy Keller wrote an article for, and they actually, The Atlantic, and they published it an op-ed about why the world needs church to have a revival and went on and on about how America would be greatly, and the world would be greatly affected if Christianity would grow instead of shrink. And he was using all of these like statistics that were from the 80s. And yeah, I, w- I went to Tim's church when I lived in New York. So that hits. He was using 80s, that's right, 80s data in that op-ed. You're right. Unless it's coming back to me now. How did it land with you when you read that article? It was interesting because I just went to, (laughs) I went to go see friends and ended up at a process theology conference. Don't ask because I was hosting the love line they were doing. And these are like incredible professors who are some of the kindest people. And as resistant as I want to be to that stuff, hearing them talk, I was like, huh, I like that. That idea of like, really being in relationship with people, allowing the relationship to change you, being changed by it, all this stuff that was just this like beautiful conversation. And I was like, oh, and then the next day I was reading this idea that like, it it hit me. I wanted to go, no, 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 no. (laughs) Cause please don't say that. Cause this revival idea sounds to me like hot wiring grief. It sounds to me like he isn't it's hard to admit the thing you gave your whole life to is dying and it might've harmed some people. Yep. And by might've, I mean, it really effing harmed people. There's, <laughs> and, yeah. A not insignificant number of even like builder generation, baby boober generation, like men particularly that I talk to. It's not just like one or two. It's like a couple a year come out of the woodwork that are like, we see what is happening and we were a part of it and like like yeah it's 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 like it's like a almost an inability to grieve it because if i grieve it then suddenly i have to like take on all the implications of that grief Mm. Um, well accountability yeah yeah, there's the accountability piece and so yeah it's like sometimes i'll read an article by someone like timothy keller it's like you're just like you're 
really trying to prop up your ego enough to like when you die, you can die happy, which I mean, I suppose we all are in a way, but it's like, buddy, like you caused some damage and trust me when I say it's so much better when you accept the damage that you've done and Mm. you learn how to deal with it and you learn how to metabolize that regret and that grief and try to move on versus like, because I think when you hold off on it, it just becomes this thing that there's you, no human can deal with it. It's like 50 years of regret. And that's- and I will tell you, I don't know the breadth of his work. Um, I know that a lot of Theo bros love him. He might be an incredibly compassionate, kind person. I have no idea. He's not someone I know, mm-hmm. which is probably a sign that he is not someone who's been rapidly injuring people. What? How did it hit you when you read it? Well, it's fine because I didn't realize that there... My understanding is their theology did not support women in leadership. And so when I was asking for funding to go, when I was getting ready to go abroad, I got a major rejection and they, it was a very awkward, weird experience for me that stayed with oh, me. Sure. But I also had a women's group that came out of that church that is like changed my life. So it was the relationships from that community. I've since followed him and read his work and also watched how people would talk about him or other types of leaders. And I guess for me, what I, and, and this is also through my psychotherapy lens and a trauma-informed lens that I'm like, you missed it. Like you <laughs> missed it yeah. so much. And that let's see a bunch of folks who are in dominant culture that have had very copious amounts of comfortable power and resources, and they start to lose that. This is what we start to see. And then you bring in God's word and theology and why wove it into that instead of like those were, there were still like there maybe are three or four conversations to have that he addressed in that one article and he maybe just doing a series would have been I would have liked to take let's just talk about this let's just talk about you know to break it down so I've, I don't know anything about him personally other than really as a human would not say anything bad about it but there was this culture, especially culture around women that I was like very disenchanted with. That, I that is what I remember. I remember someone telling me actually that they didn't believe in women in ministry because of Timothy Keller. But I, it's, it's really funny. I'll, I'll be honest. It's someone who did not grow up in evangelicalism, but then chose it for themselves later. Like I'm, a, I'm, my mom's background is Catholic and I was mainline Christian most of my life. Like, and then I went to a more academic seminary and so when I came to Southern California and everyone's like, well, you're reading like theologians. So, you know, like Piper and, you know, and I'm like, Timothy Keller and John Piper are not being taught at Duke or Harvard or Stanford no. or Princeton. Oh, or gosh. They're not and, theologians. Uh, I'm no, sorry. If, not, if, not Timothy Ke- if Timothy Keller was the one that convinced you that women shouldn't be in ministry, you already believed that women shouldn't yeah, be yeah. in ministry. <laughs> But yeah. I, I want to circle Yikes. back to something that you were saying, Justin, to about folks that were kind of were, every now and then seeing folks drip and say, whoa, I've been a part of the problem. And mm-hmm. I think that's something I was even a part of my I'm like, oh, my gosh, like I had to forgive myself first and foremost, and then reach out to some folks and say, you know, that thing that I showed the way? No, I'm sorry. And how was that for you? And that's actually holy to me. That's actually some sacred stuff. And if we don't do that. I remember reading in a youth specialties kind of statistics, early 2000s, when it was in its heyday, and it was going over the struggles of lead pastors. And this is before I went to grad school to become a psychotherapist. And it stood out to me around issues around pornography and adultery and substance use and suicidal ideation, suicidal completion, embezzlement. I mean, the list goes on and on. And I thought, dang. And so that was fascinating to me coming out of D.C. and seeing like there's not much difference here with some of the power and resources. But there was also because it was around faith, something that's supposed to be healing, something, you know, there was something that felt a little different. Right. I mean, the religion of politics is its own thing for sure. But those statistics, I think, were probably under even at the time. You know, thought okay, kind of how closeted folks were. Um, oh, yeah. Now it's a, it's a lot cooler and, oh, and yeah. safer to share. And so, if those statistics were what they were in the early 2000s when I read that, that just really stood out to me, and obviously got me asking questions around leadership quickly after I read that, saying, "How are you?" 
and then seeing the response, you know, or I've got my accountability brothers, you know, there's like, but then you find out that the accountability wasn't accountability, it was colluding for some spaces right. and, other, and other folks that was really beautiful and helpful. But um, there's a, a deep loneliness with leading and how, whether it's how we lead ourselves and when we're leading others. And I, so there's so many like myths and myths around that still. And there's this sense of, I'm not supposed to struggle and that now the fall, and we kind of have this whole journey of, it's like a, it's like a, like a movie. Then we're going to build up to, we're going to roll out the sin and share the story and share the overcome, like we were talking about. And or I'm going to take time off. You know, I'm going to step back is a big thing. And I appreciate that, but I really am missing the accountability, the repair, and then the entering into remorse, not because you lost your power and your access and your fame and your resources, but because of what you were part of. I feel like the folks that you were talking about, Justin, that you were working with at the restaurant or seeing, those are the folks I want to hear from. Those are the folks I'm curious about what are you doing and or what are you rumbling with and who I want to learn from, not someone who's still trying to figure out a way to rebrand themselves in a new era without accountability, without stepping back and rethinking things too. So yeah, I, I'm curious for you both. Are you seeing within this community of kind of rev recovery community that folks are hanging in the deconstruction place and having a harder, do they get stuck in grief or is it, do they feel pressured? You mentioned a little bit, Sarah, getting out of it, or is there a, is there a space now, a more welcome space to be where you are in your inquiry? Yeah. Great question. Our yeah. community that is around our discord is across the board. Mm, There's, yeah. There are a lot of folks who are in different stages of deconstruction. You used a word earlier that I think really is helpful in that space and is permission. Like people mm. will like mention like, Hey, I I'm thinking this thing. And then it's interesting. Cause like three or four people will chime in and be like, that's yeah. I remember feeling that way too. Like just this giant sense of permission to be there and you know, even when people are like, I'm in really big, deep grief, people are like, oh man, I know how that is, but you won't stay there forever. So there, there feels like there is a sense of people being allowed to be where they are. I don't feel like there's a, you need to move into the next whatever. But I also think we were really clear about the fact that we didn't want to, Justin and I didn't want to create or be a part of any community that was just about what we don't do and what we don't believe and what we aren't. Yeah. anymore yeah. we wanted to focus on like what's generative what yeah, yeah. are we and becoming so, yeah. so even in it i mean there's groups so people who help each other write resumes or work on their linkedin or like that's whatever hot. it is because yeah. that's like the that's the generative thing of like hey what's next um but also i think some of the conversations i don't know justin what do you think yeah i i think i mean we have people like again theologically as far as deconstruction goes across the board there's still people that are still very christian and there are people that are not at all. And I like that we have a space mm -hmm. where everyone feels like, you know, that's, awesome. that's, that's, you know, just, you have permission to be whatever you are after ministry, because I think whatever Christianity you practiced when you were a pastor is not going, I hope is not the Christianity you're going to practice when you're a lay person, simply because the way you hold yourself, the way you engage with faith, what you're paid to believe versus what you actually believe and sometimes you don't even realize that. That that was a big thing for me when I left. It was like, huh, interesting. I believed on behalf of other people a lot, but I'm not quite mm. sure what I believe. And now I have the freedom to really dive into that. And so I think it's more just a we we just embrace the inquiry of like, who am I now? And for some people, it's like, yeah, I'm still very much a Christian man. I still go to church. And then for other people, it's like, if I never go back, that's fine. And 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 we want to be a type of community and a type of podcast that like that's okay with either position. It's not for me. It's not what do you believe at the end. It's no. are you healthy, happy, fulfilled? Are you generative? Are you able to, are you able to contextualize your ministry experience and make it something that helps you get the next job or helps you become whatever the next thing happens to be, how that plays out in someone's life. I have, I, I'm not invested in that necessarily, uh, or a particular outcome. 
um, simply because I had to be invested in particular outcomes for so long as a pastor, like, and I'm, I'm just tired of that. Honestly, I want to, you know, kind of create the fertile ground for people to grow and then we find out what we have. I think that's just Beautiful. more exciting. Well, that's also supports mental and physical and relational well-being too, because again, the casualties of losing something that's such a part of your identity and security and safety and even source of funding and all of that can really upend someone's sense of, is it worth even being here? Mm-hmm. And of course, to me, the answer is a hundred thousand percent. Yes. But that existential crisis is often people dance with that because when you change so much, it's, it's kind of fries the nervous system a little bit. So I'm really grateful for the space that you're creating. Um, it's, hundred percent necessary. So I appreciate the both of you and your leadership. That that means a lot. Yeah. Thanks. I, uh, thank you. you know, as we come to sort of a close of our time together again, thank you so much for giving of your time. I really, I have a sense that like you've a little bit given us permission to grieve. Is there any, like anything that's been helpful for you as you've been kind of grieving and I don't want to make it like, is there anything that made it better? Because that's what we've been talking against. But is there any way that you feel like anything that that's was helpful? Generative grief, right? That's kind of what you're talking about. Um, the more honest I got with myself and what more honest I got with myself and what I was really feeling and thinking about experiences or about my choices or about things that happened or were said, you know, all of that, the more honest I was and just really looked at it. And the more I started to separate my worth and my safety versus what other folks in that community thought of me in my faith journey, the better it was. And the more I was able to grieve relationships I wanted to be something that they really mm. weren't going to be yeah. Yeah. and then start to cultivate my own, my life took off. I, I would say it was there was a, a slow and steady rebuilding of community within my, my relationship with myself, my inner system, my faith. For me, yeah. I still have it. And it, it, it's something that's very sacred and precious, but I'm very guarded of it being associated with any kind of movement. So I would say that it is, it is important what we metabolize. And it is, we have to feel through, not think through things. We have to, and it will take its time and it will do its work. And the clarity that it offers us will whether it's the relationship, whether it's the job, whether it's the identity, whether it's that next step, the more that we metabolize and give ourselves permission to be honest and, and let that grief do what it needs to do, what you are wanting will come. I don't know when, it still might be a minute, but it will come. I keep seeing that with everyone that I work with when they're making big transitions. But the key is to separate, not only, not only metabolize the grief, but to separate your worth and uh, safety from who you thought you were supposed to be and starting to discover and cultivate that and build, rebuild your sense of trust in your decision-making process versus what you were told to do that work there. However long it takes is the most generative work any of us can do and to not ever do it in isolation. We are not meant to do it in isolation. So because, you know, finding a community like yours is essential, I think to that process. Thank you so much, friend. Okay. Where can folks find you? Yeah, I'm on Instagram at Rebecca Ching MFT. I love checking in with folks there. And you can also find me at www.rebeccaching.com or my own podcast, The Unburdened Leader, where we have a lot of these deep conversations where folks talk about the burdens that inspire their life's work. So I'd yeah. be honored for folks to check that place out too. Thank you so much. So great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you are enjoying the conversations you hear on RevCovery, you can continue the conversation with us and many more incredible people in the RevCovery room on Discord. To access our Discord, please join our Patreon to become part of the RevCovery room community. You can join for as little as $4 a month, and this helps us produce the show as well as gives you access to the community resources. Check it out at www.patreon.com revcovery. We know that not everyone is able to financially support the show, but there are lots of ways to support us, including giving us a five-star review wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to like and subscribe across all social media. 
Recovery Room is our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook handle, so you can find us there to keep the conversation going. Now on to some final thoughts and this week's poem. Thank you so much for sticking around and listening to this week's episode of Recovery. I hope that you found that conversation just as helpful as I found it. I'm always grateful for my conversations with Rebecca. And although it's not something that she brags about in any way, shape or form, she has been involved in the work of Brene Brown, someone that I have respected for many years. And I think I've read every single book Brene's put out. As I was thinking through sort of this idea of what this conversation held, there was a lot of ideas around accountability, humility, and what it means to go through crisis and come out different. So this is a quote actually from Brene Brown, uh, and I think it's really helpful. A crisis highlights all of our fault lines. We can pretend that we have nothing to learn, or we can take this opportunity to own the truth and make a better future for ourselves and others. Friends, as we go through many of the crises of our life, my hope is that many of us will be willing and ready to take on maybe an opportunity to be something different and maybe an opportunity to say that we were wrong when we were wrong and step into a new future. Again, thank you for joining us and we'll see you next week. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground, and it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.